Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back, everyone. This is David Feingold, your host for the Future of Higher Education. And I'm delighted to be back with John Sexton, President Emeritus of New York University. John, I want to pick up where we left off and talk about the evolution of the Global Network University. Um, In an earlier conversation you and I had had offline, you'd mentioned that um, when you were thinking about going beyond the many small satellite campuses NYU had to expanding the global network, you looked at the American University of Paris that had approached you as a possible uh, merger candidate. So I'm curious, what did you take away from looking at that? And as you were thinking about building a bigger presence in other countries, how did you think about the build our own versus acquire or partner kind of option? Well, the American University in Paris uh, came to us through a friend. In fact, one of the folks who sat me down and did an intervention as I turned 30 and said, it's time for you to go to law school. And one of my key letters of recommendation, a man named Lee Hebner, who had been with uh, Pat Buchanan and William Sapphire, the third member of the triumvirate that headed Richard Nixon's speechwriting team during the Nixon presidency. Lee's office was right next to John Dean. Uh, He came in out of the Ripon Society tradition of republicanism as a kind of Rockefeller Republican, and he felt some disquiet uh, because of the traffic he saw in 72 and left and came to live with me as my roommate for a year and then uh, got involved with Whitney Communications and through that became the publisher of the International Herald Tribune, which was based in Paris and was on the AUP board. And he showed up uh, in my office one day with the president of AUP and proposed uh, that uh, it would be a wonderful thing if uh, AUP gave itself to NYU. And it was very attractive. Uh, And NYU uh, had made its first journeys into study away in particular sites that we owned very early. The first one was set up by the Spanish department in Madrid in the 50s, when Generalissimo Franco was (laughs) in in charge. Uh, You talk about going into hostile territory. (laughs) Uh, Literally, yeah. uh, Yeah, yeah. Uh, And and the second was set set up uh, in the 60s in Paris, and run by the French department. And it had grown into a a program, but only really for French majors. So we were known in Paris. And AUP had a very interesting uh, uh, student body drawn from around the world and a very uh, attractive uh, plan for a a campus and, and strong faculty in some areas And we went very far down that road, one of the attractive things being that they had a medallion which made the degrees uh, recognizable both in France and in the United States. So they were accredited by middle states as well as by the French. Uh, In in the end, uh, the the experiences that uh, NYU students had as we began to bring the institutions together. We, we didn't, in a formal sense, yet own it, 
although we had begun in a friendly way to seed the AUP board with people who were appointed by NYU. So we were fairly far down this process. But the student experience was that it wasn't the kind of education they expected from New York University. I'm not going to say so much it was a quality issue. I think the education just was differently intended and differently delivered and, and, and didn't meet what our students expected in our study away class, which was a certain kind of integration with the courses in New York and a certain kind of fluidity of, of uh, the faculty uh, in, in areas other than the main focus of the place. And there just wasn't that flexibility at AUP. So in the end, and where you decided that was not to do it. Now, since you ask a structural question, yeah. which is essentially, as one of my trustees put it, build it or buy it, right. uh, it, it turned out that the lessons we learned in AUP enabled the absorption of what was then called Brooklyn Poly as our engineering school, because we never thought that we would do away with the corporate identity of AUP, because it had this medallion that was not transferable to another corporation. So we couldn't literally absorb them into NYU. We could only effectively own it by virtue of appointing trustees. We had run into difficulty with uh, bringing Poly in to NYU because the faculty at Poly uh, wanted ipso facto to be granted tenure at NYU. And uh, my position was that they should not want to be part of a university, which which, uh, by the stroke of the pen of the president of the university or the trustees or anybody else would absorb it. so when we had the AEP experience, that caused us then to go back to Poly and say, wait a minute, we'll maintain the corporate identity of Poly and all the rights of tenure that faculty have in that, uh, that entity uh, until such time as we feel comfortable absorbing it. But that's a, a one-way ratchet. That's an NYU decision when the quality of the student body, the faculty, and so forth reaches a level where we feel comfortable absorbing the institution in toto as opposed on a one-by-one basis. So the question you ask uh, kind of evolved from that space, these two experiences, uh, into the, the question of how we did study away. So as I think I've said earlier, the kind of 1.0 of the Global Network University was realizing the globality uh, or as I used to say at the time, the glocalism, global and local simultaneously, of New York City itself, that, that if, if we were conscious about it and we used the neighborhoods of New York, we could give our students a sense of the cultures of the world simply by using those neighborhoods and what was available culturally within them. But then, and I think this is where we left off, the, yep. the, 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 the question became, okay, but those are people who've come to America. They're with us on our terms. Let's think about going to them. Now, classically, study away was done uh, 
by by sending students to partner universities and and NYU to this day has hundreds of those partnerships. In fact, they've grown because of our presence around the world. Uh, they're even more numerous here, uh, and students have all those options if they want to. But of course, to the extent that AUP wasn't sufficiently integrated and, and, and a circulatory system with with uh, NYU New York a fortiori with right. regard to if you're dealing with the Sorbonne, right? Uh, so so uh, it, we we began uh, principally with a focus uh, which just evolved on on Europe. We had been given in the '90s an extraordinary uh, 57 acre campus, uh, a villa, which could be used as a campus in Florence, one mile from the Duomo in the city. Uh, you could almost touch the Duomo from the gardens of Villa La Pietra. Uh, and we began, that was the first study of Wayside that was not departmentally owned. Uh, and, and then very quickly, uh, London appeared. And then of course we became very conscious. In fact, we were Eurocentric. So that's when we began populating the other continents, including importantly, I'll mention, because it will become important later, uh, a study of Wayside in Shanghai, uh, because that got us into communication with the leadership in education in Shanghai. But it was all just study away, a semester, maybe a year, uh, but they would be fully integrated with the education that was going on in New York, run by the departments uh, and schools uh, out of New York in terms of the individual courses, the same way that happens uh, in the College of Arts and Sciences, for example. And in uh, this in this 2.0 model, were, you mentioned it evolved from departments. So were they somewhat broader? They, they might be serving several different types of things people would well, study? We, uh, the, 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 the legacy sites in Madrid... And in Paris, which had been owned by the Spanish and the French departments, uh, continued their program for those departments, but they became university sites. And and uh, uh, undergraduates could take not just Spanish there, but we began to mount a liberal arts curriculum right. in all of these places. When I say it was run by the schools and departments, I mean the academics, the individual anatomical parts. Yeah. Uh, just as in the College of Arts and Sciences, different departments mount courses. And in the case of NYU, which has uh, a dozen different schools, right. undergraduate, yep. and, 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 and we're not talking about schools or colleges the way a dorm system exists at Yale, for example, but we're talking about having an undergraduate Academic business units. school, yeah. an undergraduate school yep. of the arts. Yep. So all of the Now, it, it wasn't that every department and every school was at every site. That's where when we grew to sure. about 15 sites, uh, the, the provost would guide a conversation among the deans and department chairs that would say, okay, so let's, let's think of this as what are the local assets of this site? So, so London, for example, would be a place for uh, finance and theater. Uh, uh, Florence would be fine art and European history and sure. Prague would be transition government and music and so forth. So each site began to develop a personality that might attract a student there. But even by my beginning to explain 
the, in, the, the role of the departments and schools, you begin to get a sense of what I yep. mean. It, it's, it's a fully integrated system. And, and uh, a student could look out if he or she were a major and, and probably see in his or her major four or five sites. Uh, even if you were like a bus- the business school began to run a program where uh, a certain set of students, I think it was students in the top 20 percent of the class, were allowed to do three study away semesters uh, studying away from New York. And they, they did them in, in London, Shanghai and Buenos Aires. Wow. So, so you could see the uh, same with the Tisch School of the Arts, right? right? So, so it, it really began to develop some power, even in the study wayside model. The next stage, if you want me to continue yes, to three three point yeah. So, so um, when we were up to about uh, a dozen or maybe fourteen sites, uh, we looked at it, and it was no longer Eurocentric. That was good. It was maybe Europe heavy, but not Eurocentric. But there was no presence for the Arab or Muslim world. And that seemed utterly wrong. And especially since we were beginning to use the metaphor to ecumenism. And I'm, I'm talking about the ecumenical university. It, it, this was particularly a stark omission. So uh, at, at, at that point, we looked at six... Again, we were on a, a model of build it and integrate it, right? Right. Uh, and we looked at six locations, uh, and everyone that I talked to, in, in I, I, the number of vectors I brought into this, from political leaders to business leaders to to, 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 to academics, would single out the Emirates and especially Abu Dhabi within the Emirates as having extraordinary leadership that people sensed would be compatible to this. So it was out of that, that uh, uh, I, I was given uh, what was to be a 15 minute meeting at what's called Magellis, M-A-G-E-L-I-S, which is a kind of meeting between the ruler and citizens who wish to bring things to him. And, and I was given a 15 minute slot on a Sunday uh, in, in Abu Dhabi with Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed. And uh, you can come back and unpack it if you, if you, if you want. Uh, it ended up being a phenomenal and seminal meeting. It went well beyond an hour. And, and it was there in that conversation that he proposed that instead of a study of wayside, we create a university which was as good as any in the world, de novo, and that it would not be a university of principally for the indigenous population. Uh, we always conceived of the indigenous population as something, you know, around 10% of the student body at, at its peak, uh, which is where it's been in recent years. Uh, but, um, uh, it would be essentially, given the mission, which Abu Dhabi was very willing to support, of creating the leadership cohort for the world, uh, an integrated world, a world that could live ecumenically. Uh, Sheikh Mohammed was 
remarkably well-informed on things that I had written, which were incoherent and even had taken his own thinking beyond anything that I had written about this, because uh, it was just the germ of an idea. And I, I remember in that conversation, he said to me, uh, what, what worries you most about this? If we were to do this, what worries you most? And I said to him, uh, well, I think what worries me is that either NYU or Abu Dhabi would cut corners. Uh, I said, we could send over A minus faculty. We could accept A minus students. It would be a very, very good school, but it would not meet the standard you've set, which is as good as any in the world or better. Uh, and on the other hand, you could say, uh, you know, times are tough. Let's let's cut a little bit back on this. I, I, I'm not talking about opulence. I'm talking about academically justified expenses. I'm not talking about climbing walls sure. yeah, and yeah. things of that sort. But but I'm I'm talking about labs and yeah. uh, uh, faculty and student ratio, world class faculty, and yeah. exactly yeah. exactly. And and uh, he said, "Well, I won't cut corners if you don't cut corners." And uh, you know, we're now uh, close to fifteen years in. I guess it's fourteen years in, and uh, I don't think either side has let the other side down. And what's been built there is extraordinary, and is among. It's as good as any university in the world, and for some students, it's it's the clear choice, and and it gets about an eighty five percent return on its offers of admission, and its admission by every metric is as good as the top ten schools in the world. Uh, so so that grew out of that conversation. It was originally to be a study away site. So so you actually your fifteen minute pitch was for adding a Muslim study away site, not for the full thing that it evolved. Well, well you said a Muslim study. It would have been a study away site in a Muslim country. Sorry. Yes, yeah, I yeah, misspoke. Yeah, but yeah, yes, you, yeah. you were you were looking to fill that gap in your network, not to create an entirely different type of institution. Right. Uh, I, I think there had been some suggestion that there might be an opportunity to discuss a bigger project. But frankly, I, I, until we met, it wasn't a reality in my mind. Uh, and, and, uh, the, the key point in developing NYU Abu Dhabi was really interesting. The, 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 the response of faculty, and I'm not talking about a plebiscite here. I'm talking about you put something on offer and do people respond. And, uh, under the direction of, uh, a set of extraordinary women, it's interesting because the, the leadership team. That, that I had working on this with me uh, were five women. Uh, uh, the, the leader of the team was a woman named Marriott Westerman, uh, who uh, now has returned as the second vice chancellor of NYU Abu Dhabi. But she was the founding chancellor and then turned it over for 10 years to Al Bloom, who had just stepped down as the president of Swarthmore. And then when Al stepped down, Marriott went back uh, and is doing a magnificent job there. Uh, the late Hillary Ballin, uh, one of her best friends and a former dean at Columbia, uh, was uh, her academic sidekick on this. And then a woman named Linda Mills did all of the uh, apparatus of student affairs and things like that. She's a senior vice chancellor at the university to this day. 
uh, and, and Diane Yu, who was my chief of staff, built what I'll call in, in-country program. And Cheryl Mills, uh, formerly White House counsel, uh, who was general counsel of the university, did the legal work. That team of five women did an extraordinary job of building it. And there was an outpouring of enthusiasm. Hundreds of faculty participated in building the career. Because the chance, as you know, of, of, uh, of being told, okay, build your dream school tabula rasa. So the science not quite a blank check, but a pretty big one, right? Well, a, che- a check for anything you could justify yeah. on the norm of building excellence. Yeah. And, and, and uh, uh, so the scientists came together and decided to do away with the science departments in the science curricula. They built what was called Foundations of Science, which built in an integrated way around uh, bi- biology, chemistry, and physics, and uh, calculus, and so forth. Uh, but, but that's only a metaphor. That happened in all the areas. Amazing new curriculum developments. The, 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 the best of faculty uh, volunteered to go over there and then began hiring the best. Uh, so so it, it really was quite a remarkable thing. But then as we got close, we were about... Uh, a little less than 18 months out. And of course that meant that if you're looking at it, you know, you're going to open in September, 2010, this is January of 2009. You gotta, you gotta have high school juniors thinking about this, you know, in order to apply in September. And, and, you know, so we had the brochures and the courses and great faculty, and we knew it was going to be a plus, but, we didn't have a campus yet, and uh, it, 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 we, you know, we had been going around the four women, and now Al had come on, and I, and we're in hotel rooms with guidance counselors around the world. The people that run the Fulbright Scholars Program had decided that this was a tremendous empowerment for for students around the world. That in fact, it was an honors uh, pro- program. So, so they agreed to do scouting for us. In, in the nooks and crannies of the world for talent. And I sat in my office with the team in January, 2009, and I panicked. And I said, you know, we wanted to open with a hundred students and we had set a criteria normatively. We said they have to be quote, clearly admissible to any school in the world, close quote, if that school saw their record. Now, many of the That's a pretty high bar for a brand new place. No, no. In other words, this, we wanted students that would be admitted to to Harvard and Yale and Princeton and uh, Beda and Oxford and Cambridge, and we're going to turn it down to come to us. And uh, that meant, frankly, that probably out of every 20 students we admitted to NYU New York, which was already one of the most selective, you know, NYU New York at that time was certainly among the top 25 selective schools in the United States. So it's very, very good. But probably out of every 10 or 20 students that we would admit to NYU New York, only the top one would be admitted to NYU Abu Dhabi. And whether we would yield that student 
was another question. Friend, were you in New York? You know, uh, so we, uh, I panicked and I said, I'm, when, when I promised His Highness that we were not going to compromise. This is the moment of truth for me. Right. Right. Because I could oh, I could fill class. That was not an issue. But and a very good class, just maybe oh, not yeah. the very best. Yeah. 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 And 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 uh, I, I went to our partners and I said, listen. I think that we may only get 30 or 40 students of the caliber we want. I would prefer to open with 30 or 40 NYU Abu Dhabi students and 60 or 70 study away students. Is that okay? And they said, we said we were not going to compromise quality. But then I began to think forward a bit. And, you know, I know that you're trying to probe, you know, how does one go through the the mental processes of this kind of thing? So, so I, I then realized something even more important to realize about the entering students that subsequent classes would depend upon the quality of that entering class that, that people may not know that David Levering Lewis has won the Pulitzer Prize twice and is going to be teaching a seminar and is a great person to be with. Or that Stephen Holmes was a Nobel-level political scientist or, or, or Jan Niarko, a Nobel-level, and not having won the Nobel yet, but capable of winning uh, a, a Nobel in economics. Uh, they don't know that. Because all schools say we have a great faculty. And, and the noise drowns out the reality, right? The fact is, there was going to be a great faculty there. But so what? It's it's not something that tugs a young person and his or her family into the school. But if the valedictorian from the previous year's class went, aha, now we know because it's it's local knowledge. So a lot turned on that first class. And then, again, trying to think through the entire process, I said, now, even if we get the 100 students we want, if we don't deliver and they leave, and by the way, it may well be they don't understand what we're delivering. We just may not be the right match for them. It's not that we may be doing a great job, but but we haven't seen enough of them and and they haven't seen any of us. And especially because they're going to be coming from around the world to a place few of them could spell. And, and, and many of them, I mean, at this point, the faculty in New York uh, were, were frequently saying Abu Dubai. You know, they didn't know the difference between Dubai and Abu Dhabi, for example, yeah. which is an important difference in this context. Sure. So, so, so uh, it was around, we were out there in these hotels, and by now we had touched about a thousand high schools around the world. And we had about two or 300 scouts, the Fulbright scouts and people like that out, out. Uh, and we, we sent out word uh, that we wanted these high school headmasters or guidance counselors and, and or the scouts each to forward to us the name of one or two students for whom, based on the seminars we had run and so forth, explaining what the school was, 
they thought this school might be right. The student did not have to apply. They just had to afford it. So that produced 49 young people by the time we entered the end of August. Now, we haven't started the admissions process yet, right? No applications are due till November 1st. And none of these kids has applied. And we said, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to fly those 49 people from wherever they are in the world into Abu Dhabi. And they're going to go through three days of taking classes, doing exercises together, uh, being interviewed by various people uh, and so forth, and us explaining to them what we're doing. And uh, we're going to look them in the eye and say to them, and, and I, for the first, well, for the first 10 years of NYU Abu Dhabi, I guess, no, I guess the first seven years, I met with every student that was being considered for admission there and, and spent two or three hours with them in a group, the entire group. So this first 40, group of 49, I met with for three hours, explaining to them what we're doing. And I looked them in the eye and I said, if we have any doubt about whether you're a good match for this, we're not going to offer you admission. And if you have any doubt as to whether or not you want to undertake this mission, because this is a compact you're making, that we're going to create an ecumenical world together. We're going to this. This is about uh, experiencing each other and experience diversity wonderfully. I want you to turn down an offer if we make a mistake and offer you one. So that was the that was the kind of reciprocal warning. Uh, now, of course, none of these kids had applied yet, right? right. So, so. Uh, the, the the first exercise we had them do was they all gathered in a common room, the 49 of them, and each of them took one minute to introduce himself or herself. By the time they were through with that introduction, I, I mean, it was magical. And uh, 47 of those 49 kids applied. But more important than that, we didn't know about the World College Network, which are 18 schools around the world that run very much on a philosophy in high school. That, and these kids had been wondering, there's no college out there for us. And suddenly, this exploded. It went viral on social media out of the World College Network. And, out, and we got thousands of applications within the two weeks after that. And we ended up, Al Bloom told us that if we wanted a class of 100, we had to accept, he said, Swarthmore's yield is the best among liberal arts colleges. We get a 60% yield. So you have to admit 180 students to get a a class of 100. We said, well, we're not going to, we don't need to get 100. But we had more than 180 about whom we were enthusiastic, that we thought met that standard. After we had gone through, because we then replicated when people applied, we did five what we called candidates weekends. So you got in, we examined your, your, your paper record, and that got you an invitation to come for one of these weekends. And we had brought in about, I think, 100 to each of the five candidates weekends. So we had brought in 500 students. 
We ended up making 180 offers because we had more than 180. We felt we could make an offer to. We had more. We weren't going to offer more than 180, but but we had more. We could have. Uh, we made the 180 offers, and uh, the uh, the return, the, the 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 yield from that was like 140. So the first year, you know, we surpassed Swatmore's yield. We were very close to Harvard's yield. Uh, and in terms of every other norm, like uh, SAT score, uh, for the, uh, those that had it, you know, for some, we had to be test optional, the kids coming out of the Masimara. But, but, uh, but there were, uh, the largest contingent was from the United States. That was about 15% of the class. There were seven from the Emirates out of the 140, six women and one man. Uh, one of the women went on to be uh, a Rhodes Scholar. Uh, and uh, in fact, three in that first class went on to be Rhodes Scholars. And uh, uh, the, uh, uh, I think there was something like 65 countries represented in, in that opening class. And by the way, every, every sector of those societies. So you know, it, it's ridiculous to say Pell Grant eligible. Pr- probably ninety five percent of the class was Pell Grant eligible. These were not the children of of, of the elites. Uh, 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 just to give you one story, in that first class, a young man named Muspa who was from Ethiopia. I just got an email this morning from a woman who says I am one of the many of the long line of Ethiopian students going back to Muspa who've been transformed by NYU Abu Dhabi because we, we draw the, 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 out of the top 10 students out of Ethiopia, we probably get six of them for NYU Abu Dhabi and the others go to, you know, Oxford or Harvard or whatever. But uh, uh, for those that apply to us, since now the yield is 85%, I think, uh, and the acceptance rate is below Harvard's, uh, so every norm, but Muspa is an example of the diversity because he had homeschooled himself in his tribal village in Ethiopia. He walked three days as a 13 year old to the international school, said, give me any exam you want to give me. Uh, I'm, I'm ready. He got all the top. He ended up being their valedictorian and coming to NYU Abu Dhabi. Uh, and, and, you know, that is not an atypical story uh, in, 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 in when you teach them, they're just wonderful to teach. And, when they began to come to New York and other places, that's when the idea of NYU Abu Dhabi took. Because people would say, who is that person? And then they'd find out they were an NYU Abu Dhabi that was in their class on study away here in New York or someplace else. So, fine. so, so John, can, could you just share in terms of a couple of the core elements of the model? Obviously, you, you had agreed on absolute world-class standards excellence. What was the thinking in terms of how the faculty there worked relative to New York in terms of of the hiring, the contracts, the the interchange, and how much interchange was there among faculty between NY New York and Abu Dhabi? Well, first of all, an, an important thing to keep in mind is NYU is a private university. So people sometimes think of it as a public university. And and in NYU Abu Dhabi, we are a private university fully supported by the government. Right. But uh, I would say that the autonomy 
in terms of academics and, uh, well, everything really that happens on campus of NYU Abu Dhabi is, uh, you know, on a, on a scale from, 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 from one to 10, if, if, if 10 is the autonomy that, let's say, uh, Stanford enjoys, okay, uh, vis-a-vis California, which is almost absolute, right, right. And uh, on that, uh, a four or a five, so not bad, one's not bad, but a four or five would be the autonomy that Michigan enjoys from the state government, right? Uh, NYU Abu Dhabi is uh, probably a, a, a 9.8, you know, I mean, so we're, we're fully autonomous, except that there is a budget conversation, but, but a budget conversation right. very much in the spirit of what His Highness and I ex- existed. Now, beyond that, so, so that means we have complete control over the academics. The, 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 now, we, we, uh, uh, now, one of the key elements of quality control that evolved in the global network university was moving from the concept of a set of branch campuses, like a hub and spoke, to thinking of the system once Abu Dhabi developed as a kind of second pole uh, and the, the, the study of waysites could be seen as integrated with New York and Abu Dhabi because you have students coming in from both places, right? As a, right. So we began to view the network, first came the word network, but it's really a circulatory system. So students circulate among the system the way blood circulates among you. Uh, as faculty circulate among the system. The appointments are done both and. So, so both the New York department and the Abu Dhabi department have to approve uh, a new appointment if, if it's going to be an appointment to the faculty of NYU Abu Dhabi because that faculty member is going to get circulatory rights occasionally into New York. By the way, the Chinese, we may as well add 4.0 yeah, now, sure. and then you can, because the questions really are very similar. <clears throat> so the Chinese saw what we had done in Abu Dhabi after the first year of operation and came to us. And they said, we've looked at the universities of the world. You're the one that we want to choose for an experiment. They call it a pilot. In, in, uh, 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 Shanghai, which replicates what you've done in Abu Dhabi. And we said to them, we don't want to replicate what we've done in Abu Dhabi. We want to create yet another version of what we've done. And in, in Shanghai, so the, 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 the agreement was, and both sides wanted it, that 50% of the student body will be native Chinese and must take the Gaokao exam. Uh, from our side, we were delighted with that because there are 12 million high school graduates each year in China, 9 million go to college and take the Gaokao exam, which is their national test. Uh, there was the C9. We said, we just want to be the 10th member of the C9, make it now the C10. So you can't even apply to NYU Shanghai unless you're in the top 60,000 of the 9 million test takers on the Gaokao then you have to go through applying, being invited to Candidates Weekend, and they do their own Candidates Weekend. So 50% of the students are Chinese there, and the other half come in 
from uh, around the world. Uh, in NYU Abu Dhabi, I think the American contingent, which is the largest, is about 15%. Uh, in NYU Shanghai, I think it may be 20 or 25%. There's a tremendous interest in, in being in Shanghai uh, among, among Americans, uh, especially now that Mandarin is being widely taught in high schools. So, so, uh, so anyway, again, in Shanghai, again, private university, publicly funded, they have nothing to do with admission standards. They have nothing to do with hiring a faculty, uh, right on down to, uh, the, the internet. We have our own internet pipe. Uh, so if I'm in my hotel and I can't read the New York times because of the, but if I switch to the NYU Shanghai VPN, I get the New York times sitting right in my bed in the hotel, uh, in, in, in Shanghai. So, so, uh, each of these uh, elements create this circulatory system. Now there's been added a 5.0. We were already doing 5.0, but like many other places, uh, it's been accelerated this this year. But uh, 5.0 was adding an overlay of technology. So uh, when I did my book, uh, which came out two years ago, and I wrote it probably a year or two before that, uh, th- we were already offering in the Global Network University a course called Cities by the Sea, which had in the same classroom uh, port cities from you know four different continents uh, th- talking about how do these cities operate to integrate the sea into the lives of urbanity and so forth and so on. So uh, I, you may have other questions, but that gives you an yeah. overview. No, that's great. So I, I'm curious when, um, you know, one of the extraordinary things from that first meeting you had with, with the Sheikh in, in, in Abu Dhabi was the huge investment that he was committing to this, not just to build the university, but to fund where 90% of the students are not his citizens and they're getting full scholarships. And I, my understanding is that continues to this day. Is that right? Yeah, well, we, we we set the goal of creating a school as good as any in the world. And I said to him that we would no doubt end up doing things which on reflection, you know, after six or seven years of operation, we would prune and, and, and cut, 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 uh, cut a bit. Um, so, uh, the, the financial aid at NYU Abu Dhabi is best in the world. Uh, it's very aggressive with regard to the large group of students for whom a full room board tuition scholarship still leaves attendance at the university, let alone attendance at NYU Abu Dhabi and getting all the experience of it, such as study away and so forth, which involves plane tickets, living in another city, you know, uh, a, a metro card when you're in New York and so forth. Uh, so the, a student that comes like Muspa did is going to get more than room board tuition, right? Right. right? So right. this, uh, uh, but on the other hand, uh, at, at some level, which is uh, maybe ten or fifteen percent higher than the income cutoff for Harvard, Yale, Princeton, the the the, the mega endowment schools. You, you know, yeah. uh, uh, it, 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 
we don't give full uh, financial aid. So, right. so a, a child of a sheikh that went there would not get full right. f- f- financial aid, or, or Bill Gates's child went there would not get yeah. financial aid. But by and large, uh, uh, the 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 atten- attention is not given to the income budget for NYU Abu Dhabi. The 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 discussion over budget is about expenses and and with very broad discretion given to the judgment of the academic leaders there. And that goes on to this day. Now, his, uh, Sheikh Mohammed never put a price tag. We, he didn't write a number on an envelope and said, go do it for this. He right. accepted the principle that, uh, first of all, we were going to overshoot a bit in the early years. And thank God he did. And thank God that, I mean, he, uh, he once said to me, I made the decision to back this fully in our first meeting. We're a society that judges people through the eyes and uh, it's been fun to realize that guys from Brooklyn do the same thing because he and I really, really made an act of faith in each other in that meeting. I, I mean, I, I took a lot of uh, arrows uh, in the creation of NYU Abu Dhabi. Had I not been trained as a youngster that the suffering servant was a model to follow, uh, you know, I might not have been, been able to go through, through with it. And I was armed. We've talked a little bit earlier about my love for Lisa. And, you know, Lisa was happy that I was happy being dean of the law school and being president of the university. But she didn't see much value in producing lawyers or making NYU better. But NYU Abu Dhabi and its values of creating an ecumenical world, that resonated deeply with her. So it was a way of um, acting for her in the world after her death. Um, so so uh, I felt always comfortable to pursue the goal. And he never said, be careful about what you're spending. And I remember there came a point because the, the number we wrote and we had a a terrific woman make up the proposed budget for the first year of operation and the 10 year projection and so forth. And let's not get into the numbers, but, but let's say it was X and X was substantial. Well, by the time we got to the fourth year, the number was four or five X. And I remember saying to him one night, uh, uh, there was just his major uh, uh, chief of staff and me and him uh, relaxing. And I said, you know, you're really quite amazing. You could have easily thought that I was a used car salesman and did a bait and switch on you. you, you know. And he looked at me without missing a beat. And he said, I've never been involved in a startup that didn't have multiples of the original budget. Uh, so he was completely understanding of it. Now, but the reciprocal of that is that right through to you know January first, two thousand sixteen, when a real university president, Andy Hamilton, took over NYU, uh, and I'm sure Andy has continued this. But right through, I always said to my people, I want us to develop what we do, and then after we develop it, I want to move around the table in a Rawlsian way and look at it through the eyes of our partners and make sure. We're fully comfortable from their point of view with what with what we're doing in terms of the expenditures. Uh, 
not in terms they weren't interested in being part of the curriculum development. And did he articulate to you what 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 was he hoping this would achieve for Abu Dhabi? What what was what 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 were his ultimate goals? You you've said very clearly what you wanted to achieve for the world and for the universe. Well, uh, I'll tell you what he said in that first meeting. He said, we are an extremely blessed country. And we aspire to have a major influence in the world. To make the world a better place and share our blessing. And his family has a tremendous history. If you go through North Africa and so forth, you'll see hospitals and so forth that, that, that they, they built. So it was in keeping with that. And of course, the Bedouin culture is a sharing culture instinctively. You share and you welcome the stranger. Those are two, because if you're in the desert, you want a reciprocal of that, right? Uh, sharing and welcoming the stranger. So, so that's very deep in the grain uh, of their value system. Uh, now, I can tell you, I, and I've never pushed this with him because it's not necessary, but when people say to me, why would they do that? I look at them and I say, what are you missing? We started off with the cognoscenti of New York referring to this place as Abu Dubai. They probably couldn't have located it on a blank map. And they wouldn't have known anything about it, except maybe they would have said incorrectly that oil was its major product. They would not know that it had the largest sovereign fund in the world because the founder of the country, Sheikh Mohammed's father, said back in 1970, we're not going to become petro-dependent. My parents lost their income when the Japanese invented cultured pearls and pearl diving became a fool's errand. Uh, so we're not going to become petro-dependent. And he created the world's first sovereign fund. And, and uh, today it's the largest in absolute terms, not per capita, obviously per capita, but uh, in the world, uh, although no one knows its exact value, but but they get more of their GDP from that than from oil. And and uh, uh, there's this such ignorance, right? So, so, so uh, notice what happens now. Uh, NYU... has graduated uh, classes. I think the one coming up is the seventh or the eighth. And it's now turning out uh, at the bachelor's level. Remember, there are also PhD programs, uh, but at the bachelor's level, it's turning out these unbelievably talented cohorts of students from all over the world who uh, some of them remain in the Emirates, at least for a while, uh, in the first graduating class, I think uh, uh, almost half remained in the Emirates, at least for a few years. But uh, it's not a, a talent capture program. It's a, 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 it's a discipleship program in a way. So these uh, people go out and they, 20, 25 years from now, will be leading nonprofits, uh, governments, uh, businesses, and so forth. And A, they'll all know it's Abu Dhabi. They'll all know the Emirates. They'll love both places. They'll be grateful to both places. And they will have friends because, you know, now we're up to about 10% of the class being Emirati, friends and classmates who are anchored there. This is like the great, this makes the Fulbright program look like child's play in terms of creating goodwill and connectivity and so forth. Uh, 
But but I don't think it would be done solely for that. His real mission is, uh, and if you're a small country, you know, with with only a million and a half citizens, only eight million residents, uh, you know, a, a, a peaceful, interconnected world is very much in your advantage, especially if you're in that region. So, uh, and then in addition to that, put all that to aside. That would be enough, yeah. and it's it's the sui generis mission of this place. Uh, but uh, also, it stands there for you to measure the education, the intramural education system against the standard that is it's there. Smart. What's possible that is there, even for Emirati children, and to connect into it where it's useful. So we run, NYU Abu Dhabi runs programs in the high schools that are designed not to recruit kids for NYU Abu Dhabi, we'll take some of them, but to help them get into the best colleges and universities around the world and also elevate education, K through PhD yeah. at the universities there. I mean, this is a, the first country in the world to have a minister of artificial intelligence. It, it has just become the first country in the region successfully to send a probe to Mars. It arrived there last month. Uh, It's also, by the way, the first uh, country in the world to have a minister of tolerance. And uh, two Thanksgivings ago, for the first time in history, an indigenous Jewish uh, population, which has grown up in part because of NYU Abu Dhabi, uh, presented to a Muslim head of government a Torah scroll that had been specially fabricated over the course of a year. And that ruler, while the rabbi sang, finished the last words of the Torah. And they're now building what they're calling the Children of Abraham Square, which will have in a place about the size of Washington Square Park a, uh, a, a, a mosque, a, a church, and a, a, a synagogue. So, so I mean, it, it, but the, the point is, the students coming out of NYU Abu Dhabi and the faculty all know that. Yeah, I'm I'm curious the what what has been the path of that those seven classes of Emiratis in terms of the types of things they've done is are you starting to see the impact of them in terms of of the society? Well, in terms of uh, uh, you, you asked about the Emiratis, right? Uh, yes, that now about ten yeah. percent who are. Yeah, well, I mean, and they're enormously diffused. Now, remember, there's a bit of a lag. Sure, so, they're still so, young. So, right? so, so even going back to, to to Shama in the first class, who's the woman that got the Rhodes Scholarship, okay? So she had to complete her, her, her graduate studies at Oxford. Uh, she... she the, the the then dean of uh, the the college said to me she had gotten the the highest academic record of any Rhodes over a five year period, uh, and she's now the minister of youth in the the cabinet. Uh, she's about to turn thirty, <laughs> so, but but it, it is a society that has uh, you know younger people in positions of power than uh, most other societies. But in any case. Uh, she's just one of many and uh i don't know the exact number i i, I when i move on i move on and i'm now uh, i haven't been the president of nyu for five years i still teach in nyu abu dhabi 
In fact, tomorrow I have a faculty meeting at NYU Abu Dhabi. <laughs> but uh, uh, but uh, uh, it's more than a dozen with with seven graduating classes. It, it's it's I think fourteen Rhodes Scholars so far. But and and similarly the Schwartzmans and the uh, all, all all of the honors by which you judge the externalities. And many of this, uh, them are finishing doctoral programs or law school or whatever. It's a delight to me to have colleagues at NYU Law School come and say, in a class of 90, first year class, uh, Arthur Miller came to me and said, who was that woman in the back row in my class yesterday? That was, she's special. I said, well, that's Mastiche from Ethiopia. You know, So when he's that's the best uh, verification as far as I'm concerned. And, and just to check on the circulatory model. So is it a requirement for either faculty or students to go to multiple campuses? Is it their choice or how, how does that work in terms of, of, of the, the overall system? Well, it's not a requirement for anyone. Uh, it's not a right for faculty or staff, it's a privilege, a very sought after privilege. Uh, and there's, there's, first of all, uh, both the receiving campus and the, 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 the campus from which you're leaving have to agree, the respective deans, and, and, and then uh, you enter a competition and you say why it's a value to you and why it would be a value to, to the two uh, institutions. Uh, uh, so, so, uh, but but it's a substantial uh, uh, participation. I, I mean, we're not talking about one or two a year. We're, we're, and of course, the entire founding faculty of NYU Abu Dhabi and NYU Shanghai came from New York. And now right. there's a faculty of three or four hundred over there uh, on a standing basis, and probably fifty to one hundred what are called affiliated faculty circulating in for anywhere from on the short side, well, you could go and do a seven week. Uh, the, the semester is divided into two seven week segments and you could do a part A of a semester and part B. And there is a three week January term. So you could circulate in for that. Those would be on the short side. Most people go for a year or uh, for multiple years. Uh, and, when I say the very best people go, I mean, the last time I was over there, I ran into the Nobel economist, Tom Sargent, who just loves being over there and is building the economics department there. Uh, so, 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 and that's just one example. And so and same, um, thing, same thing is true in Shanghai. So, so you mentioned when you first met with, with the, the, the leader there that, that he said, what, what's your biggest worry about this? And you mentioned cut, cutting corners. I, I'm curious as it evolved, what, what were the biggest challenges you faced? And I mean, one, I guess, uh, occurs to me is you, you mentioned the, the whole leadership team was female. That, I, I think, would be pretty atypical in Abu Dhabi to have a, an all-female leadership or a predominantly female leadership team. Did you run into cultural or other clashes that you had to overcome? Uh, well, uh, on that issue, none at all. Zero. Uh, indeed, uh, the, the key thing is it was blessed. I mean, uh, very early on, even before we opened, uh, during Ramadan, uh, Sheikh Mohammed has a series of lectures where he brings in scholars that speak to essentially the, the entire leadership community, 
in the Emirates, uh, several hundred people. And uh, we were over there for a meeting and he said, why don't you come with your team? And he made a point of sitting us directly opposite to the royal family. Uh, so we were looking at each other and the speaker was between us. And and that just is a cultural signal that uh, um, uh, Tayyip Kamali, who at the time was the head of one of their three national universities, was asked at the UN at a meeting once where I was present, what's the biggest change that NYU Abu Dhabi has brought for your university? And uh, uh, he referred to this course for Emirati students that I referred to earlier that I have taught myself for the last 12 years. Uh, uh, And uh, uh, he was summoned with the men who were the presidents or leaders of the other two national universities to the palace. And he said, when he came in, there were six women all dressed the way New York business women dress. And one he didn't recognize. And he assumed it was John had sent another woman. <laughs> and, but when we, when they went in for the meeting, I, I was not at the meeting. When he went, when they went for the meeting, this woman, they didn't recognize sat at the head of the table. And it was at that moment, he realized that this was Sheikha Maryam, the crown prince's daughter. And he said, for the three of us, our hearts started beating palpably because none of us had ever set eyes on the face, the uncovered face of a royal. And this was an amazing cultural thing. And he said, we had all told John that the class that he was going to teach for 20 of our students, chosen by the NYU faculty, but the 20 students that we're at these three universities. They're going to get credit for my course at the, and I, I, John had insisted that it would be co-ed and they had said the families just won't tolerate it. It's impossible. Uh, can't be done. And, uh, that subject came up at this meeting and Sheikha Mariam said, of course it will be co-ed. Uh, they're, they're going to be together in the workplace. They may as well be together in class. And he said, that was the day my university became co-ed. Uh, so subtle things like that. We never had problems of that sort. Uh, uh, And, and, uh, you know, look, uh, any startup has issues. The most significant issues were born either of the ignorance of folks in New York or the ideological opposition of folks in New York or the goodwilled when I say ignorance, I mean ignorance about the culture we were dealing with and the people we were dealing with. Uh, I think there was a goodwilled skepticism that remained uninformed. Uh, uh, I would say to people, look, there, there, there are obvious issues. I call them the windshield issues. We wouldn't have done this if we hadn't resolved to our satisfaction, subject to experience, the windshield issues, like, are we really going to, am I really going to be able to say in my religion and government class that the thing I want the students to learn most is a healthy disrespect for authority? Emphasis on healthy. It's not just disrespecting authority like some adolescent, but healthy in the sense that you're going to have a reason why you disagree and start with me as your teacher. But when those 20 students went with me to get their diplomas from his highness after a year of studying together. And they said to him, John told us 
that he wanted to teach us a healthy disrespect for authority. I, I had a partner who would look at them and say, if one of you learned that it's worth a, 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 an entire day's production of oil. So, so I mean, it was a convergent of uh, 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 value, but uh, uh, there was a lack of understanding as to, hey, look, America was in the process of this, this was 2006, seven, eight, you know, what, what we see now, 12 years later, uh, 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 developing a culture of distrust. And I had been saying to my deans, it's already out there for government and the churches and corporations. It's going to come to universities. And now, of course, it, it, it has. But part of it was, I mean, my entire administration was built about, uh, was built, literally built of people who were in the respective academies of, of their disciplines. You know, I became president as a, Marin, a member of the American Academy uh, of Arts and Sciences and, and, and the Council on Foreign Relations. And I've written books and, and well-reviewed books for major pre- – and my provost was one of the world's leading mathematicians who had run the – et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But the moment we became what we became, we were no longer, quote, faculty, close quote, even though we were teaching and writing more than most of our colleagues. Um, uh, so there was this distrust that was there. That's part of the landscape, right? It's not. It's not ad hominem. It's not personal to John. Uh, you just can't take it personally, and you do your best to explain. But when that was combined with uh, with, with uh, a segment for, which, for ideological reasons, wanted to inflame the situation, and another segment which was just ignorant and and and, and perhaps afraid of the other and unknown. You know, if you ask me what the biggest challenge was, right. it was that. Yep. yep. Well, that makes good sense. And I've learned through our conversations that nothing gets higher priority for you than your teaching. So I'm going to stop here and make sure you have plenty of time for your class. All right, my friend. Thank you. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you so Sorry. much, John.